Welcome to the 378th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Meg Tracy, Philippa Clark, Mackenzie Jones, and Hannah Mishesha to discuss their research on people with disabilities coping during the pandemic era. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests. And of course, as always, feel, feel free to suggest yourself. As of today, November 18th, 2021, there are 5,126,962 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. Let me continue that now. Headline is Lockwood family devastated by loss after family gets COVID. This appeared on KTVQ Billings, Montana. It was written by Brandon Warren and appeared October 28, 2021. Dateline Lockwood. A Lockwood family is devastated after losing their stepdad and putting their mother on a ventilator on the same day. It was completely unexpected. Our hearts are completely broken right now, said daughter Jessica Bray. Bray and most of her family got COVID-19 in early October of this year. Bray's mother, Sammy Pettigo, age 50, had a worse case and was taken to Billings Clinic. Bray woke up to a call from her mother saying that she was being fully sedated and put on a ventilator. She went to wake up her stepfather, Jerry Pettigo, so they could talk to her mom while she was being sedated, but what she found will haunt her forever. I went downstairs thinking I was just going to wake him up, and I found him lying on the floor in the basement. I ran up to him, dropped down to him, said, Jerry, wake up, over and over again. I tried to find a pulse in his arm and couldn't find one, she said. Ray's stepfather had died sometime during the night at age 49. The coroner has yet to, this at the time that this story was produced, the coroner has yet to determine the cause, but believes he had COVID at the time of his death, according to the family. I haven't been able to talk to my mom. I haven't been able to know what she knows. She's not a naive woman. She's been a certified nursing assistant for 20-some years, said Bray. At the time this was written, her mom was still fully sedated, and the family was only allowed to have visits where they see her through glass. According to Bray, all she and her brother can do is wait and pray their mother recovers. She's always been a very loving parent. Everybody's mom is the best mom in the world. My mom is like that, said Kevin Kolhep, Bray's brother. All I want to do is give my mom a big hug. She's always been there for me, and I will do anything for her, said Bray. The family is now left with medical bills, funeral expenses, and the mortgage for the house they lived in with their parents, which is why friends created a GoFundMe account for them. Ray does not want to make funeral arrangements for her stepfather without her mother's say, but doctors don't know how long she'll be under. Much of the family's future is uncertain, which is why Kolhep is clinging to the words of his stepfather. 
what he always said was, we'll get through it. He didn't like worrying about it because, yes, it's happening, but we'll get through it. It's that simple to him. And I've kind of adopted that philosophy, said Kolhep. Emmy Pedagog's birthday was on Halloween, and the family was hoping that she would be awake so they could spend it with her. Doctors were hoping they could take her off the ventilator sometime in November, hoping for an update on this story. But her recovery remained a work in progress. All we can do is be hopeful and pray that she can make it through this. I can't even think about the alternative at the moment, said Bray. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and let me introduce my guests, and I'll just take them one at a time. Philippa Clark is a professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. She's also a research professor at the University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research. Her work examines the social determinants of disability, with a particular focus on the built environment for older adults aging in place. Lindsay Jones is the Health Education Specialist for the Montana Disability and Health Program at the Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services and the Accessibility Liaison for the APHA Disability Section. Hannah Mishasha is a doctoral candidate at the Department of Counseling, University of Montana, and the Mentoring Co-Chair for the APHA Disability Section Mentorship Program. And Meg Ann Tracy is a senior scientist and research associate professor at the University of Montana Rural Institute for Inclusive Communities with nearly 30 years of experience in the field of disability and health. Philippa McKenzie, Hannah, and Meg, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thanks for having us, Scott. So, I'd like to start the way I usually do, and I'm going to ask, maybe we'll take in turn. I, I really like it when we have big teams of researchers because we get to hear so many of the different vantage points on what a big project looks like, and we have a lot to discuss here today. I'm going to ask uh, sort of one by one people to tell me uh, where they're calling in from, what the pandemic situation looks like there, and also a question I've been asking all of my guests for months now, if you would also share a strong memory that you have of this pandemic period, something that resonates for you personally. And uh, Mackenzie, I'm going to start with you on this question. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I'm in Helena, Montana. And I think one of the, the biggest memories that I had was in regards to grief. Uh, I, had, I had older friends here in Helena, and I remember the moment they, they realized that I was still too active in the community for their comfort and their safety. And they told me that they could not see me any longer. And they were two of my best friends here in Helena. So I remember falling to the ground, just exhausted and tired and worried about, worried about what the future held and what our friendship would look like. So thank you. Thanks very much for that. Hannah, let me ask you the same question. Yeah, um, I kind of have this similar experience with McKinsey. I am in uh, Missoula, Montana. Um, early on, I think the adjustment to isolation was really hard uh, because when everything turned into um, physical distancing, as a student myself and a student with disability, it was really hard to lose all the social support and be by myself at home. 
Um, and being enrolled full time as a student was really hard. Um, so I shared that experience with um, McKinsey. Thanks. Philippa, where are you calling from? Hi, yes, I'm calling from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, so Michigan is actually not in a good state right now with COVID cases. We have our, our seven day moving case average is now the highest that we've recorded for the entire pandemic. And Michigan is seeing some of the highest COVID case numbers in the U.S. right now. On top of it all, um, on top of it all, we have actually a flu outbreak on the University of Michigan campus. So the CDC has has actually come on site to to manage that outbreak. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So my experience of the pandemic has been mostly driven by uh, being having a partner who is on the front lines in the ICU, who treats COVID patients in the ICU. Um, and that's kind of actually exacerbated by the fact that he crosses the border every day from, from Ann Arbor to Windsor and back again. So we have a cross-border situation trying to manage the pandemic as well. That's a lot to manage. It's, yeah, it's been interesting. The, I don't think I've talked to anybody who's been doing cross-border healthcare situation. I can only I hope he I hope you're documenting what that's been like. Yes, it's been it's been interesting, but we're all well, so we're we're grateful. Thanks for that. Meg, let me come to you with this same question just about where you're calling from and maybe a memory of the pandemic period. Thanks, Scott. Um so I'm in Missoula, Montana at, at the University of Montana and um that's the northwest part of the state and um my memory is, you know, over time you get to work with people in your field and Chris Katiski was um, a longtime colleague and the CDC and somebody, you know, that um, early in the pandemic, I spoke with long and often uh, about what the needs for people with disability were. And then um, and then just there, my memory is that, you know, there was a day when he stopped answering my phone calls and emails and um, soon learned that, he, you know, he got very sick and died, um, not um, from the records from a COVID-related um, death, but um, just the loss of colleagues who were working at the edge of the curve in terms of what we could do and, and losing them and what that has meant for our capacity uh, to, to, you know, keep keep doing our best. Um, that That's... Yeah, that, that was a wake up call to me for how hard this was going to be, how how um, thin our resources were um, to pivot and respond to the needs of people with disabilities during the pandemic. And um, that a loss of someone like Chris would, you know, really um, be a, um, a disruption in, in the capacity that we did have. So did Chris pass away early on in the pandemic. He did um, in April of 2020, as I recall. Yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah. And he was a lead scientist, uh, um, a champion um, uh, for change within CDC and nationally. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is the, the dislocation of our grief. Uh, hard you know people had a hard time having funerals and you know for for family members but then also you know being away from each other in our workspaces and yeah we're be together like this and this is a togetherness but it's not the same 
sort of solidarity that people need when they lose a colleague. And national meetings, as much as I like to complain about having to go to a national meeting of a big society or something like that, they sometimes function very well that way, right? When you lose a colleague, you do get a chance to be together and tell old stories and things like that. I'm sure that can come in the future, but um, it's deferred. And I think that takes a toll on people. Thanks, Chris. I mean, and if I may, I mean, this was very much around the time that media was um, snowballing with the stories of deaths in our nursing homes and assisted living facilities and um, just the running spreadsheet of these accounts of deaths and cases that were not on the radar of, of our public health tracking systems yet. Um, and just, you know, that was, um, you know, people just so dislocated by you know, institutional systems from, you know, from visibility in, in our response until, you know, media really stepped up and, and played their role in bringing that forward. Meg, let me stay with you. I want to get a question in about Montana. Uh, I haven't had any guests on thus far. I don't think this is the first time I've had guests from Montana. Now I have multiple, which is really good to get this perspective in. In, because I'd like to know a little bit about the landscape view of kind of the public health challenges. And in Montana, it's got urban areas. It's got intensely rural areas. It's got Native American populations. Um, I know it's a whole story in and of itself, but maybe could you hit some of the headlines about, you know, how the pandemic has played out in Montana and some of the unique challenges from a public health perspective? Um, sure, I, I can do my best, and I'm obviously going to be speaking from the perspective of people with disability. Um, and and I'm not from Montana. I've been here since 1991, so 30 years. But I um, am not from Montana, um, and I'm I'm not Native American. But I will say, um, um, from the from the perspective of people with disabilities, I, um, you know, when we first saw the communication about the virus um, in China, um, it was on our radar. Um, and when we said, hey, what's gonna be happening after winter break um, on campus and in the state, um, we're, we're concerned about this. Um, and it hadn't really hit the public agenda yet, but it was definitely on the radar of people with disability in the state. Um, and, um, and then, Early on, I think we went to um, our emergency operation plans and we started to look at how people with disabilities were represented and did our best to strengthen that. I think within, um, you know, the area of, of response um, for pandemics, we had done a good job including nursing homes as part of, as, a, as like an extension of hospitals. But we didn't really think about where people with disabilities live. Um, and those are usually in homes and community. And so in terms of resourcing some of the mitigation protocols, we hadn't really articulated that in the plan. Um, our emergency managers, our local county health officials who were leading the response um, did not have those providers who provide in-home services um, to people with disability supports that people with disabilities need to stay in the community with their families and friends at their jobs. Um, and so um, we, we started to do our best to 
expand um, those those groups with um, disability organizations and begin to say um, if we are looking at distribution of um, personal protective equipment to nursing homes, what additional resources do we need to protect personal care attendants and home health aides and others in those uh, direct support roles that they had um, with people with disabilities. Um, certainly we began to um, look at what was available for our programs that support people with disabilities statewide through the Appendix K option, which allowed us to expand um, those programs under Medicaid to allow for some different flexibilities um, um, for people to be a little more nimble, <laughs> a little more uh, resourceful in how they um, provided support um, um, throughout their day. Um, so and on a blue sky day, it, you really aren't allowed to have your spouse or a parent um, as your paid caregiver. But under the Appendix K, that was something that we could yeah. provide for and um, continue to um, support um, people's uh, residential option, um, even though they might need to step away from that option to be in a safer setting closer to direct support. Um, so those some those were some of the things that we were doing very early on and um, and then um, just doing our best to stay connected to the disability community, which again, right, is not a monolith, but um, nationally it exists um, in ways that bring resources to Montana that um, um, we, we need to know about. Um, so we started to participate in calls supported by the National Council on Independent Living, um, the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies, and um, and communicating more often and more frequently with some of our national partners like the American Association on Health and Disability and really um, just doing our best to, to stay uh, up to date on what the needs of people with disabilities were, um, what they could be, and trying to um, be ready to um, change some of those policies and, and resources with our systems and, and harden our environments to be robust um, and, and resilient. Um, so I, I would say it was, we were working around the clock and I can't, I can't even, I can't even think about, you know, in the midst of that, the crisis care guidance, um, issues started to come up. So as we're doing our best to just, um, strengthen things, all of a sudden we became very aware that, um, mm there may be a day when resources become so scarce that we have to implement crisis care guidance. And um, that became um, something that we approached in Montana as, oh good, there's a planning opportunity, let's get ahead of this. And it was a pretty easy ask based on some of that work for, for us to say to our, you know, our medical work group, um, we need re disability representation in that work group. And so then um, we, with the, with the, with the doctors who were in that space designing the crisis care guidance for Montana, I was there with um, the advocacy coordinator for one of our centers for independent living, Travis Hoffman, and then our disability rights organization was reviewing all the guidance. That was, you know, that was. It's just been, it's been a lot of work, and then to realize, you know, from our national partners, um, you know, that some were taking 
a different approach. They were having to go to the Office of Civil Rights um, and, and really with complaints about crisis care guidance that people's um, protections and rights are being threatened. It has been, um, it has been a, a lot of work. Um, <laughs> we certainly, um, uh, with the fourth wave, you know, on October 12th, we were at 510 hospitalizations. We're down to 302 COVID-related hospitalizations today. Um, so we're down, we're on the downtrend, but um, just looking back, you know, in the first five months of the pandemic, um, we lost as many lives as we might have lost like in 24 hours recently with the fourth, fourth wave. So it has been um, something that we thought we had gotten through. We have a lot of tools in our toolkit um, that we're trying to continue to promote using, um, but we need, you know, we need to do more. Um, uh, American Indians um, were disproportionately and are disproportionately being affected by COVID. Um, there are more cases um, among American Indians. Um, they make up about seven 7.2% of our population, but 10% of the cases are among American Indians. We're seeing deaths at lower ages among American Indians in our state. Um, and that's, you know, a part of a narrative that's shared by so many underrepresented communities in the country. And um, that, that's a lot. Sorry, Scott. No, that's, that's, thank you for that's, that's a lot of really useful information. I appreciate that. folks also that you're listening to COVID calls today and we're talking about disability and disability research in Montana and beyond in the middle of the pandemic with Hannah Mishisha, Mackenzie Jones, Philippa Clark, and Meg Tracy. And Mackenzie, I want to uh, come to you now and ask you about, you know, kind of what brought you all together, a shared research project to understand barriers um, faced by those with disabilities uh, and I wonder how you started the project, maybe how it connects to previous work that you were doing before the pandemic. I think Meg has very nicely laid out some of the really pressing sort of response-oriented issues, but researchers also do research in the middle of the crisis too, to try to make sense and to try to capture what's happening um, to make the next pandemic not as disastrous. So bring us into that world of research, Mackenzie. I will, thank you uh, for that question. So one of our colleagues, L. Els Nievenhausen, she is a, is a retired occupational therapist and researcher at the University of Michigan. She had been attending, I think as many of us had, a lot of webinars about disability and environmental barriers and COVID. And she recognized that each speaker, each panelist on these webinars were mentioning similar barriers, but they all had different terms for these barriers, whether it was um, transportation barriers, communication barriers, isolation, quarantine, education barriers. And um, she wanted 
us to see her. A lot of her research is based around the International Classification of Functioning, Disability and Health, which I hope we get to explain a little bit more later. Um, but it really looks at the lens of limitations of functioning that people experience in its relationship with environmental and personal factors and how those play a role in someone's ability to participate and be active within the community. And so she brought this idea to this team and I met her through the American Public Health Association Conference, which is the full title for APHA, um, which you mentioned earlier. And I have done a lot of work and Meg has too with the accessibility and, and inclusion of people with disability throughout that conference, that annual meeting. And Els wanted to take that that work further and see if we could identify the environmental barriers that people with disability are experiencing across um, not just the country, but globally uh, in looking at English, English papers. And some other work that I've done um, with Meg and Hannah is looking at environmental barriers through assessments. So walking out into the community with people with disability from, and then people who are engineers, city planners, and people from Centers for Independent Living, public health professionals, and really identifying what makes a place accessible, walkable, movable, and inclusive. And so just bringing that into the COVID sphere is what got us here. Let me uh, just follow up quickly on that. So like, give me an example of an environmental barrier that somebody uh, with a disability might face that would then also be exacerbated potentially by the pandemic. I think transportation is one in some cities. If I'm thinking about Montana in Butte, Montana, they do have public transportation, but they might not have bus stops everywhere. And so just in a general sense, there's barriers to getting to certain places, but then COVID came in and sometimes that transportation was completely shut down. And now people who use that transportation to get food, to go shopping, to see their friends, they are now um, even more isolated than when they were and, and without resources. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So, so you're not only trying to take stock of those environmental barriers, which is an ongoing work in disability research, disability justice work, but also uh, trying to understand, this is an interesting problem you're pointing out, that um, when people talk about this, they have different, they're using different variable terminology. How did you begin to frame that as a research problem? Um, that's correct. With the different terminology, we started to think about what um, what would help emergency planners who who might not understand the disability and health realm and so that was our goal to create recommendations and calls to action for future change and to do that with standard language across the board so let me i think we should probably for those who are not as familiar with this we need an understanding of what this international classification of functioning disability and health actually is. Hannah, can I ask you to just sort of educate us a little bit, those of us who are not disability specialists, and tell us what that is? Yeah, of course. 
Um, so the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health, ICF, is a framework that was um, established by WHO, the World Health Organization, in 2001. And the basis for that framework is seeing disability from a functioning perspective instead of a diagnosis perspective. And when we say functioning, we are just talking about what is really limiting or facilitating the participation and functioning of people with disability in their own environment. Um, so, for example, ICF has this four different areas um, within that framework. One is body function. So anyone who has a health condition or a health disorder or disability, we could say that, uh, might experience a body functioning um, issue. And that body functioning issue could, could be, for example, a mobility issue or it could be a respiratory-related re issue that has uh, some sort of uh, functioning that could pose functioning problem within the body. Um, and then we also see what kind of body structure is impacted because of uh, the body functioning, uh, because of the body functioning. And then ICF gives us the opportunity to see the combination of the body structure and body functioning and how that impacts the activity and participation of the person in their own immediate environment. That's when we talk about, um, for example, how transportation could impact them because people need to move from one place to another, uh, for example, to access health care or, for example, to access groceries. And these are the kinds of issues that people were um, having a problem with, with during uh, the pandemic. So when we um, also look at the environmental factors, which is also uh, one of uh, the categories in the ICF, it goes into what is presented within the individual's environment. It could be from a policy point of view, it could be from an infrastructure point of view, it could be from any support that's laid out for the person uh, that could enable or put a barrier into their participation or activity. Uh, so just like Mackenzie said earlier, uh, anyone who has a mobility functioning issue uh, could have uh, could encounter a problem to move from one place to another. So if there is a policy within their community that provides an opportunity for free transportation, for example, or it's not necessarily free, but also accessible transportation that helps them to move from one place to another, then there is an environmental facilitator. It means people will be able to function uh, in a way in the way that they want to function. However, if the transportation has uh, encountered, if the transportation system encountered a problem, uh, then the participation of uh, individuals with disability is impacted, then the environment poses a barrier. Uh, for them. So ICF in general helps us to look into each aspect of the person's functioning uh, from uh, the environment perspective, from a function perspective, instead of looking into from a diagnostic and just medical model uh, perspective. Okay, thank you so much for that overview. Uh, really helpful. And I want to, uh, Philippa, let me let me bring you in and see if you want to comment on anything that's been said. And then I have a, a 
question. Maybe you can educate me a little bit. I had um, Brianne Bennis on earlier in the week, who's the host of the No End in Sight podcast, which focuses on chronic illness. And I'm curious as well, uh, the kind of distinctions that might be made um, in the research community, but I guess also in any way we might think about it in terms of, of law, for example, um, how we distinguish among a disability community and a chronic sort of chronic illness community, or are they all sort of, maybe this gets to this problem of defining terms and terminology and figuring out who figures into what or whatnot. Because, I mean, she's talking about um, people who maybe have you know, tick-borne illnesses or they have any number of sort of chronic, hard-to-diagnose, long-term health concerns, which also create conditions for them that sound very much like what Hannah is describing. But the term disability didn't come up at all in our conversation. We talked for an hour about chronic illness. So um, I don't want to take us too far afield, but I wonder if maybe you want to say anything about that and then also talk about this research you were all doing and particularly what it tells us about the early phase of the pandemic. Yeah, fabulous. I mean, I'll start in, but I'll, I'll also defer to my colleagues on these answers as well. But it's a very, it's a perfect point that you raise about chronic illness and disability. And I think it relates to exactly what Hannah was saying about the ICF and that it is trying to steer away from focusing on the illness or the diagnosis to think more about the consequences of that diagnosis, the consequence of disease at the level of the person and society. Um, so the ICF is really a uniform framework for thinking about how conditions can express themselves in the body, in the person's function, and in the in society, and recognizing that uh, someone, if someone has a chronic condition like hearing loss, um, that their experience of that condition is really a function of the environment that we live in. And so just because someone has hearing loss does not necessarily mean they were are disabled. Um, it means that they don't necessarily have to have restrictions in participation in society if they have a hearing aid, or if everybody knew how to use sign language, or if there was an interpreter. And so those environmental factors can minimize the impact, the, or can facilitate function for people who have different levels of a condition or different impacts of a condition on the body. Um, so that's how the ICF is useful. It recognizes that disability is just really socially created by the context, the environment, the social attitudes and behaviors, the policies that we have in place, and how that can be very different depending on, on what your particular condition is, whether it's a hearing loss, whether it's multiple sclerosis, whether it's because you're left-handed and the whole world is built for right-handed people. It's really just thinking about understanding dynamics and the interaction. And, and the work that certainly that we, uh, we did in terms of trying to understand the research that was going on in the pandemic really recognized that there was this interaction with the environment and it really was unique to COVID in many senses. So for example, people who have hearing loss um, if they were admitted to the ICU, the restrictions in hospital are that you couldn't have, an, you know, an, someone with you. You're really on your own in hospital um, during the pandemic. And so they couldn't have an interpreter. And so that lack of an interpreter means that that person is not able to then to communicate with their healthcare providers. So the pandemic really exacerbated a lot of the barriers that um, people with disability experience. It also turned some of the typical facilitators into barriers in ways or made them more challenging um, in ways 
um, that we hadn't really expected. So I'll pass it off to my other colleagues to kind of elaborate on that. Thanks, Philippa. If, if um, Scott, I'll, I'll just extend, you know, I, and um, so disability can also be identity. So if, you know, if it's such a part of who you are and what you expect from society um, in, in terms of being able to participate, um, like your friends um, and families who may not have these conditions, um, I, I think that's, you know, one of the things that we really have um, tried to to pull out in this review too. And I, I think we'll say a little bit more about that, how, how disability is represented within the ICF really centers, that there are certain people who have that lived experience. And from that experience, some work hard to distill it into expertise, solutions, resources that need to be embedded in planning. And um, I, I, I would say um, when I think about illness, um, and COVID in particular, um, I would say when when people experience disability, having illness can lead, um, you know, um, in in ways because of logistics um, uh, to limit their life and and choices and opportunities and participation in ways that people without disability who have the same chronic illness may not. Um, be limited, and I, and and that can just happen logistically. It can also happen because of discrimination and stigma bias against people with disability, and we have seen that you know in the pandemic, um, um, and we have seen that across disasters. You know, the National Council on Disability in 2019 published their report on the impacts of disasters on people with disabilities and the um, institutionalization that happens when people's supports are disrupted and there isn't a focus on replacing those. There's just a, um, a expectation that, oh, the disaster caused them to be de deconditioned or therefore they need to be institutionalized now instead of recognizing that the disaster really disturbed their arrangements that supported their independence. Um, so, um, and I will, you know, within this context, I think we have a lot to learn about long haul COVID and the disability community has a lot to offer in terms of supporting people to continue to live meaningful lives if they have uh, acquired long-term disability as a result of COVID. Mackenzie, let's just bring you back in on this. Anything you wanted to comment there and, and also maybe take us a little bit more inside what the research started to point out. And, and one of the things you um, said to me in our communication before this session was that there were a lot of editorials that popped up pretty early on um, in this as well, which is maybe a way to take a temperature out there of the many different people who are sort of drawn to this problem early on in the pandemic. And I'd like to hear more about that. Definitely. I do want to um, first mention Christine Mulhorn is another member of our team that has worked with us. And I know she's a common colleague with uh, Dr. Knowles. So thank you so much for having us. Can I just pause there for a second? And, and I hope she's listening and just tell the world that Christine Mulhorn is a genius and a wonderful person. And I can't wait to have her on COVID calls as well. And she also helped us all come together on this. So, okay, thanks. Uh, go, carry on. <laughs> for example, a um, care provider, someone who comes into the home and supports someone with a disability with whatever needs they have, support person in a normal 
Meg likes to say blue sky day, that is a facilitator for this person. It provides independence opportunities. It helps them live in the community and um, really supports them so that they can participate in identifying because the ICF itself only uses modifiers of barriers, facilitators, and neutral. And this was a facilitator that based on the context of COVID was turned to a barrier or a challenge. And yeah, if you have a follow-up, and then I'll, I'll let Hannah answer the other question about editorials when you're ready to transfer over. Yeah, thank you for that. Hannah, let me, let me give you a chance to comment on any of that and, and talk also about this sort of preponderance of editorials in the literature you were reviewing. Yeah, I think McKinsey said it well, um, that there were some circumstances with immediate family, personal care for providers that presented a unique challenge that is just specific to COVID uh, because of the public health guidelines that we have and the risk uh, for, uh, you know, infections that COVID has presented in without COVID or without this pandemic. Of course, immediate family members and personal care providers will be facilitators and they are great resources to have. Uh, but specific to, to COVID, it was presented as one of uh, the major challenges that uh, most researchers were talking about. Um, so regarding most of the editorials, what we have noticed was as soon as the public as this emergency public health guidelines were in place, people with disabilities themselves were starting to speak. So the research or the, the papers were coming out as editorials and opinions and analysis of personal experiences and how they were being challenged uh, by the, the environment and by, by the guidelines that were in place. Uh, for example, with PPE, for someone who uses a sign language uh, originally when masks were uh, implemented, we didn't have a mask that could show uh, communication through mouth, uh, which can be very much helpful for someone who uses a sign language. Uh, so we happened to um, run into a lot of research that were coming uh, from the perspective of people with disability. And some of the research actually, uh, we even wrote an editorial, me and a couple of uh, my colleagues on the experience of students with disability and how we were impacted uh, by the public health guidelines and the accommodations that were in place. Um, so definitely we run into most editorials than actual papers. And when I say actual papers, I mean uh, studies that were uh, based on uh, respondents. Yeah. Uh, Philippa, let me ask you, since you described earlier this uh, cross-border reality of your daily life and your family, is this research, did, were you focusing mostly in the United States? And uh, is there an international perspective? And I'm also curious if there are any trends that you can notice either anecdotally or more analytically um, about how we can group these problems? I mean, are these problems more acute in places where people already are underserved by uh, healthcare, maybe in the American South or more rural areas? What kind of, are there any trends that you can point to geographically or, or does the data not reveal that? Right, so our, um, our review was not constrained to the United States. It was, it was worldwide. 
Um, we did restrict our publications to English language publications. So that, you know, was a restriction in some ways, but uh, we did, you know, review studies from, from all over really from Europe, from Italy as well, um, from India. We really covered a lot of different countries and generally there was the same message that was coming out. Um, I think in terms of thinking about um, the, I'm going to pass your second part of your questions on to, to I think Meg or, or Mackenzie even about um, how, what do we, what do we learn from this and um, what, what kind of trends we saw Kenzie or Maggie, either one of you want to talk about that? Um, my first reaction when I saw that question that you provided earlier was, what a great opportunity for future analysis. I think we were focusing on the aggregate of papers and not really looking at the differences between the countries and or U.S. versus other countries. And so I don't want to say anything that we weren't able to research yet, but it gives us ideas for future, and I appreciate that. That's a, that's like a stellar researcher's answer to a question like that, which is that, yes, it's on the list of questions we're going to get to, and I appreciate that. Meg, let me bring you in. Anything you wanted to comment on that, and then I think we should talk about the ways that the work also informs emergency management uh, planning. Yeah, I think the one thing I would say is, um, you know, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities um, as um, an agenda um, that reflects both the need and the opportunities for our, for our countries, our societies to be strengthened um, by raising the voices and, and wisdom, knowledge of, of people with disabilities, um, you know, across the globe, you know, it's, it, there's so much variability, uh, on, on those, um, on the rights of people with this, of, of persons with disabilities, um, across the globe. And I think, you know, your question, you know, and being able to look at that, um, will matter. Um, the, the pandemic has laid bare, you know, the disparities where people do not enjoy rights and, um, so, um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely pay attention in that way. Um, th there are definitely, um, you know, policies that, you know, we are aware of through the media, you know, that came through from more ableistic views of, of society um, and um, have exacerbated the disproportionate impact on people with disabilities. Um, the old triage model um, um, of, you know, survival of the fittest, those kinds of things have, have really um, been felt by people with disabilities. If it's, if it's, you know, somewhere latent in policy, it will be expressed in higher rates of cases, deaths, and suffering among people with disability.
let me just remind everybody that you're listening to COVID Calls and we're talking about disability and disability research in the midst of the pandemic with Hannah Mashisha, Mackenzie Jones, Philippa Clark, and Meg Tracy. And I want to, um, we still have some time to talk about sort of what you learned in the in the study and, and how um, it's shaping maybe public policy and emergency management policy, emergency preparedness policy. McKinsey, let me just come back to you on that. Maybe you can point to some of the specific kinds of, I don't know if you feel like using the word recommendations or you know where you are in terms of activating the research. Can you talk to, about that for a little bit? Definitely, thank you. We are still in the process of organizing our results, but during our um, coding or linking process, when we looked at, we reviewed the papers, we identified key phrases that we connected with codes within that um, ICF framework. And that created this standard language of environmental factors that we were really looking at. And we also identified calls to action that maybe the authors were providing in their, um, in their own recommendations and discussion, parts of their paper, or even just as an editorial. And I believe I would say that everyone on in on our research team prior to COVID really would emphasize including people with disability in the work that they're doing, no matter what, in planning from the start, in the implementation, in the evaluation. And that was a, a major call to action or recommendation, especially the, the papers that focused on healthcare and from within hospitals and healthcare systems people with disability or professionals with even professionals with disability, doctors, nurses, and uh, professionals within the field of disability and health said, if you want to make a change, if you want to know what environmental factors to address, talk to people with disability, include them in your planning committees, don't leave them out. There's the phrase, nothing about us without us, but Another one of our colleagues says nothing without us. People with disability are 25% of the population that we know of through research, through data, but I am sure that there are a lot more that um, have limitations functioning. And we need to recognize that we can't keep building our societies based on the, the, um, the status quo the typical what we expect, who's in power, but really seeking the voices of people who have been marginalized for so long. And that that rang true as a specific example within the papers that talked about um, specific health service policies and triaging. People with disability were often at the bottom of that list. If they had to triage, the doctors, the nurses, staff of the hospitals were in positions to decide who was going to get a ventilator. And often that mm. that decision was made based off of subjective valuing of human life. And so recognizing that that can't happen anymore. And in order to stop that, we need to, to include people with disability throughout all of these conversations. Hannah, is that a concern that comes up in the editorials? The, the sort of people pointing out these cases. I mean, the one that McKinsey's just relating in a triage situation that somebody with a disability if they don't have an advocate to speak for them or if the, there's not a good protocol in place, they might actually be denied life-saving services. Does that pop up in the research? 
Absolutely. I think Mackenzie described it very well, that the main gap with all the policies and the guidelines that were in place uh, was originally when the policies were created, they were created to feed the majority um, and without involving uh, the disability community as much as it should. Um, so most of the studies that we were seeing is how much neglectful those policies were and the gaps in the policies and its implementation. Uh, one of the most coded phrase, for example, was the attitudes of um, people who are working with people with, dis with disability and how much that was presenting as a barrier uh, for people to function. Uh, so all of those, I think, highlights um, how much a barrier that was uh, for people with disability, and that's what led them to speak more and to use it, uh, their platform. And I want to look back to what uh, Meg and Philippa was, were saying early on, that there is so much resiliency and learned experience within the disability community. So when we develop uh, overarching policies that impact everyone, it's good to consult and learn from uh, those systems that have been learned uh, by people with disability because they have been navigating all the isolation and the needs of uh, accommodation that the general community is now uh, facing. Hannah, let me stay with you for a second. It's, it's, I've learned a lot in these last few months um, listening to long COVID advocates and, and people who are talking about patient-led research. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there might be an interesting bridge here to the kind of work you're doing as well. And even, um, you know, talking about these editorials, I think it's a really amazing set of findings uh, that people felt like they needed to advocate for themselves. It, maybe it points to a, let's call it an opportunity rather than a failing. But I wonder, you know, is the research community and the institutions that support research, are they set up to provide the kind of um patient-led research, disability-inclusive research that sounds like we need? Because what I'm hearing is that we need mm -hmm. analysis, but we also need advocacy. And the two should be kind of dis indistinguishable, I think. But I wonder whether or not dis researchers with disabilities are included in the work, or are we going far enough to include them? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, and I'm happy to share my own experience on this, and I will let the others add um, to it. And I think research is mostly about partnership and how, whether you have a platform to publish and whether you have connections and whether you will be able to navigate those uh, academic platforms. And for people with disability, if those platforms and support systems have not been established early on, it will be so hard to self-advocate, which is why we need um, the support of other people, whether they have disability or not, to engage into the work. Um, so yes, we have seen uh, several people advocating for themselves, including myself, and I don't think that was enough, and I think we could do more uh, to create more platforms for people to speak and hear their voices. We're almost up on time in this COVID calls discussion, so we should do a, a kind of a lightning round here and, and let um, everybody get a chance if there's something they we didn't get to point, didn't get to make, or something they wanted to amplify before we before we close out. And um, Meg, let me start with you on that. 
Thanks, Scott. Um, Hannah, I appreciate that. I think that um, when we think about people with disability, um, those that are most marginalized, again, are those in our prisons, our psychiatric rehab facilities, our large group homes, nursing homes, assisted living, and making sure that they have a platform to advocate for themselves, that they um, that we are we have our eyes on the data, um, on the workforce, um, and we have our eyes on community living options and the transition supports that they need um, to rejoin community, their lives to the extent they can. Um, so thanks, I'm, I, I would say that's an outcome of, of some of this work is that we've really been able to push for more data and more, um, more sight on, on these settings. That's a, uh, thank you for making that point. It's a crucial point. I have to say that that's sort of at the cutting edge of the research here in South Korea, even in a place where there's been, um, compared to the United States, a, a low death rate, but still almost 3,000 people have died. It's a major public health crisis. Um, that it's been congregate care settings and um, long-term institutionalization, which is its own sort of, has its own sort of social history of, of stigmatization in Korea. Those are the places where COVID often has been the most profound. Um, so these are comparative across international boundaries this, as well, that, that point you were just making. Philippa, let me come to you. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I just wanted to raise the point that one of the things we saw in the literature we were reviewing was a repeated recognition that there really is not sufficient data on people with disabilities with COVID to be able to even understand or track what the implications are. So just the fact that disability identifier is not part of the COVID case report form is, is a sort of fundamental uh, problem that is sort of underlying a lot of this research. And then just quickly circling back to what Hannah was saying about the importance of including people with disability in research and that partnership. Um, there's a new director, um, Dr. Forber Pratt for NIDLR, the National Institute of Disability Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research. She is a huge advocate for the partnerships between researchers and people with disability to make sure that those voices are, are equal. Thank you for that. Hannah, anything else you wanted to add? Um, I would just say that, you know, um, I think the focus on functioning in a state of diagnosis is something that I am passionate about uh, because when we focus on diagnosis, we just focus on the problem for the most part and we focus on fixing the problem. And that takes us into uh, problematic guidelines and policies and implementations of those policies. So I would like to see like the, the work that I'm doing uh, is mostly guided seeing disability from a functioning point of view and how we can improve the participation of people with disability in their own environment uh, in the way that they would like to. Uh, so, really yeah. Point. yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, I was just saying that, yeah, the focus on functioning rather than um, diagnosis. Mackenzie, we're going to wrap up now. And final word to you. Anything you wanted to amplify out of what we said or something to leave us with? Sure. Um, learn. Learn from this experience. I think in the disability community and the emergency planning uh, community, Katrina was a huge the Hurricane Katrina back in 2006 was a huge learning experience, but obviously with this new 
disaster in our wake, um, we, we have a lot more to improve upon to support people with disability in our communities. And so if you're in those communities that are trying to fix um, your emergency plans to better support marginalized and communities like people with disability, people of color, people um, in the LGBTQ community and others, ask, ask questions, bring them into the conversation and um, don't make the same mistakes again. And we're hoping that this research can just scratch the surface on providing solutions so that emergency planners can be proactive in the future. Mackenzie, where do we find this, this research? Uh, we are just in the process of submitting to the Journal of, um, I very much apologize, it's missing my brain, Philippa, do you remember? Oh, humanistic psychology. Humanistic psychology. And hopefully we will get accepted, but if not, our next look is the American Public Health Association Journal, and we will contact you with more information. Okay, so this is really work at the cutting edge, and we'll have to have you back for an update um, when it comes out and keep tabs on the work that you're all doing. And I just want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live at 6 p.m., Eastern time. And I want to thank my guests today for this conversation about disability research. Uh, Philippa Clark, Meg Tracy, Mackenzie Jones, and Hannah Mashisha, thank you all so much for taking time to talk about this work and to really go into depth about you know the methods and what you're doing with it. Best of luck with it. Thanks, Scott. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm -hmm.